0: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talk- talking to Alex Hertel-Fernandez, who is the author of the super interesting new book, Politics at Work, uh, How Companies Turn Their Workers into Lobbyists. The book is published by Oxford University Press,
1: and I have the pleasure to talk with Alex today. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on, Heath. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and uh, so it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, so nice to hear um, uh, a fan and and to uh, get a fan uh, on with uh, uh, a new and and really, really interesting uh, new book. Before we get to it, as we always do, uh, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself
1: and uh, what your background is and where you are now? Sure, I'm a political scientist. I study the political economy of the United States with a particular emphasis on how businesses, labor unions, and wealthy donors shape politics and policy. And uh, my current position is that I'm an assistant professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University. Yeah,
0: and uh, this book, um, I know I've been looking forward to reading for a while and and got a lot out of it, found it very interesting. It's interesting in part because your focus is a little different than what we expect. Um, we typically think of corporate political power expressed in things like campaign donations or high-priced lobbyists. Your focus is a little different here. Um, what type of corporate power were you curious about at the start of this project? What was the, um, so what's the wrinkle that, that makes this project so interesting?
1: So companies, as you alluded to, play a major role in American politics. And in my research, I'm really interested in figuring out how they exercise influence and how effective that influence can be in changing elections and public policy. And what this book does is point out that companies in the United States are increasingly using their employees to change elections and public policy outcomes. So that could be talking to their employees about why they should support a particular candidate or encouraging employees to contact members of Congress to vote for a particular piece of legislation or to scuttle a bill that companies don't like. And The take home message from the book is really that if we want to understand how businesses are shaping American politics, we can't just look at traditional campaign contributions or K Street lobbyists. We have to think about the ways that companies are recruiting their employees to do a lot of this political work on their behalf.
0: Now, the the book has lots of um, really interesting descriptive um, work that we're going to talk about, but maybe you can give us just a couple of of anecdotes that uh, illustrate uh, the, the kind of, uh, activities you just described in, in general, um, are there specific companies or specific, uh, examples that, that might, um, sort of shed some light on, on how this works?
1: Sure, I think three nice examples come from Wynn Resorts, which is a big casino chain. If any of your listeners have been to Las Vegas, they'll probably recognize pretty well. Um, Menards, which is a big home improvement chain in the Midwest that uh, sells hardware and other home improvement equipment. And, uh, UPS, um, which is, of course, the big, uh, mailing company, um, uh, across the United States. So let's start with Win Resorts. So Win Resorts around the 2012 election sent out a voter guide to their employees that not only contained information about how employees could register to vote and turn out to vote, you know, things like deadlines for registering to vote or requirements for early voting. They also included a guide that had candidate descriptions, so Wynn Resorts went through and talked about what different candidates stood for, and then candidate endorsements. They pointed out the candidates that would be good for the casino and gaming industry at both the state level, so in state legislative races, but also for the federal government too, people who are running for Congress and even the presidency. And when he was asked about this, the CEO at the time explained that it was an important uh, objective for him to tell employees how they should be voting um, because it was important for furthering the aims of their business and of the gaming industry as a whole. So that's one example where companies are trying to get workers to support specific candidates for elected office. The other example I wanted to give was one uh, of employees hearing about general political issues, not about a particular election, but Um, with employers trying to change the way that workers think about politics more generally. Uh, And so at Menards, that home improvement chain that I mentioned from the Midwest, the management has an at-home civics course that employees are encouraged to take. It's billed as being voluntary, but in company materials, uh, Menards singles out employees and stores that have completed the course. And this course includes a variety of topics about how Menards is structured, but also more political and economic, Uh, subjects like regulations and taxes and social welfare benefits and how these sorts of programs hurt the American economy and how if workers at Menards want to maintain a competitive environment, then they should vote for candidates and support policies that free, uh, free companies from these sorts of excesses of regulation and taxes. So that isn't tied to any particular election, but rather it's it's aimed at changing the ways that workers think about politics more generally. The last example I wanted to give Uh, comes from UPS, which around the time of the tax bill that was being debated just a few months ago that Republicans were trying to get through Congress and to the desk of President Trump, um, UPS hosted town halls with Republican politicians, members of Congress, to talk about why the tax bill would be good for UPS's bottom line, and why UPS employees should contact their members of Congress in order to voice their support for the tax bill and really get it over the finish line. So it's not about a particular. Election—it's not about general political ideology. In this case, it was about trying to get a bill passed in Congress.
0: Now, you you approach this this subject, and I think these are examples that um, for most people would would take them uh, by surprise. Um, but you study this as a social scientist, and and you know when I when I have heard you talk about this, I, I've often thought, yeah, you know, how could you study this when when these companies surely didn't allow you to come in and directly survey their their activities or survey their employees I wonder if you'd explain a little bit about how you did this research you know what is the kind of data that you rely on to study this um, beyond these kind of very notable examples that you just gave
1: yeah it was a tricky uh... Tricky set of, of challenges that I had to overcome. And I think you put your finger on it in that there's no one data source that I could turn to that would allow me to answer the question of how common employer recruitment of workers is and the sort of effect that it has on American politics. I had to triangulate between uh, several different data sources. So I commissioned a series of nationally representative surveys of workers to ask American employees, you know, have you received messages from your employers? If so, What did those messages look like? Did they have any effect on your political behavior or your political attitudes? And those surveys are important for getting a sense of what this looks like from the macro level. Um, And I was sort of surprised when I first started this project that employee recruitment wasn't something that existing surveys really asked about. Um, My first instinct when I was starting this project was to turn to surveys like the general social survey or um, the American national election studies. And to my surprise, The workplace and employers weren't really asked about um, in those surveys, so I had to sort of go out on my own and, and collect this data. But I realized that surveying workers wouldn't be enough. I also had to get the management perspective. So I also commissioned a series of surveys of top corporate managers to get a sense of How many companies report doing this? Why they do it? The sort of effects that they think this has, how effective they think this tactic is relative to other tactics like making campaign contributions or hiring lobbyists, and how this varies across industries and different firm sizes. Uh, The last pieces of evidence came from interviews that I did with government affairs officers at a number of large American companies, um, over thirty, and I conducted in-depth, mostly telephone interviews, but in some cases, in-person interviews with these officers to get a sense of really why they thought that mobilization was an effective use of their corporate resources. And, you know, having them walk me through cases where this worked and just as importantly, where it didn't work. And if this wasn't something that their company was doing, um, these interviews also allowed me to get a sense of why they thought that they shouldn't be engaging their employees into politics. So these different data sources surveys of managers, of workers, and interviews together form the backbone of the evidence I use in the book.
0: And and what did you find? Um, For example, what percentage of uh, corporate employees experience this type of influence and and how do employees react to these tactics? Um, Do they react at all? Uh, If they react, what are are some of the the typical ways an employee would react if exposed to to the kinds of uh, uh, tactics you described earlier?
1: So the top line finding from the book is that about one in four American employees have been contacted about politics by their top managers and their supervisors. And in the surveys of managers, about half of all of those managers said that their organizations did something to recruit their employees into politics. Now, I should point out that both employees and managers said that this contact encompassed things like contacting them about political candidates, but also, you know, what we might think of as more nonpartisan activities, like reminding their employees to vote. So when you think about these top-line numbers, I think it's important to recognize that they contain a mix of different types of messages. Um, But for the most part, the modal message was really about politics and policy, and wasn't just a neutral message about registering or turning out to vote. So, of course, the, the next question is, Did this have any effect? You know, did employees change their political behaviors and attitudes? And in the book, I try and answer this question in a variety of different ways. One straightforward way is to just simply ask workers, you know, did the message that you received from your employer, did it have any effect on you? Um, and about half of all workers who were contacted by their employers said that yes, you know, the message persuaded me that I should go out and vote for a company's favored candidate, or that I should go out and vote at all, or that I should contact a member of Congress about a piece of legislation. Um, of course, there are problems with this sort of question because not all workers might remember receiving a message from their employers, and even if they remember receiving a message, they may not remember that they were affected by that message. So, in other parts of the book, I compare workers you <laughs> who received messages from their employers and workers who didn't. And I look at their political preferences and their political participation along a variety of sort of standard activities that political scientists study. Things like, you know, whether they volunteered for candidates or campaigns or tried to persuade other people about how they should vote or gave money to political campaigns. And um, I find that workers who received employer messages not only are more likely to participate in politics, but they're also more likely to hold political preferences that match those of their employers. A final way that I try and pin down the effect of employer messages is to ask managers themselves, you know, are these effective strategies? Do they shape politics and policy? And on the survey of managers that I did, I asked managers to rank from least effective to most effective the different strategies that their company used to change public policy. And I found that managers were about equally likely to rank lobbying and hiring Uh, lobbying and hiring um, lobbyists as being as effective as recruiting their employees into politics. And they actually ranked recruiting their employees into politics as being more effective than making PAC contributions or participating in major business associations or even buying political ads. So workers say this has an impact on their behavior. We, We can pick up an impact when we look at surveys and managers for their part say that this is an effective strategy.
0: Now, one of the things you explore in the book is the changing patterns over time. Uh, Are companies more likely to do this now than in the past? Or is this something that is a uh, waning corporate strategy for some kind of reason? So uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the historical part of this?
1: Yeah. So that's a, a big focus of the book is to try and understand how this has changed over time in the American economy. And as I point out, um, when I first started the project, I I, I talked to uh, an expert on American elections, Alex Kazar, um, who, when, when he heard about my results, asked me, well, what else is new? Employers have tried to shape the political behavior of their employees for Decades, um, and he pointed me to the examples of employers at the turn of the century, of the uh, turn of the twentieth century, who, in these industrial one-company towns, would march their employees down to the voting booth and ensure that they all voted for the company favored candidate. And so, it is true that uh, when we think back to the 1800s and the early 1900s, there was certainly a lot of employer messaging and even coercion and pressure and threats of violence uh, to get employees to vote for company-favored candidates. But when you flash forward to mid-century, a lot of that activity disappeared. You know, it disappeared in part because uh, we had electoral secrecy laws that made it harder for employers to track the behavior of their workers. I think it disappeared because we had the rise of tighter labor markets and greater worker bargaining power. So workers were more easily able to say, you know, no, I I don't want to pay attention to any of these employer requests that I'm receiving. And it also disappeared because employers had new competition in the workplace. Um, they had labor unions increasingly in the private sector that represented a lot of workers and, you know, also talked about politics with their members. And I think for all of those reasons, we saw employer mobilization efforts decline in in the mid-century of of the 1900s. But you've seen an emergence of this strategy once again, starting in the 1990s and accelerating since the 2000s. And I think this has been one of the the more striking things that I discovered in my book is that this really exploded um, in the early 2000s. And I I trace it to a confluence of several different factors. One is that workers have diminished bargaining power. Um, So in mid-century, workers had a lot more clout relative to their managers, and that made it harder for managers to make requests of their workers that workers might disagree with. You've seen a decline of the labor movement in the private sector, so employers no longer have to compete with unions over political messages in the workplace. And you've also seen the rise of new technology that makes it a lot easier for employers to contact their workers and communicate about politics. With a click of a button now, An employer can send political requests to tens of thousands of workers, and they can even target those messages to workers who we might think are most pivotal. So uh, companies that I interviewed said that they might only contact employees that live in the district of a key member of Congress that they're trying to persuade, um, and that way that member of Congress hears from people who actually live in his or her constituency. The last factor that I think matters here is a changing legal context. Um, As I discuss in the book, campaign finance and labor law has increasingly made it easier for employers to communicate with their workers about politics and in a way that um, leaves employers a lot of latitude. Um, There are very few restrictions in present day on what employers can communicate to their workers about politics.
0: So you're telling me that the, these activities are by and large uh, legal um, and the, their legality is, o- is only increasing over time. That doesn't really say whether this is a good or a bad thing. Um, maybe we can talk uh, sort of tor- towards uh, the conclusion of our conversation about whether whether this is good or bad. I mean, is is mobilization of workers simply a good thing regardless of who is doing the mobilization? Or are there reasons for us to worry about what you found in the book?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I try and tackle in the conclusion of the book, you know, zooming out, I think political mobilization by, um, other actors in society is generally something that we consider to be a good thing. We think it's a good thing when people are pulled into politics, they develop more political knowledge, they develop more political interest. And, you know, certainly it's the case that political participation rates in the United States when it comes to things like voting and turnout is quite low in comparative context. Many of our peer advanced democracies have much higher voting rates, for instance, than the United States. And we also have a very class skewed um, system of of turnout with uh, lower income and lower educated uh, Americans much less likely to be registered to vote and to participate in elections. And so we might think that, you know, employers helping employees to get to the polls and to get interested in politics is a good thing. On the other hand, in the book, I explain that the relationship between employers and employees is different from other sorts of relationships in society. So when an employer sends a political request to their workers, it's different than when, say, political party communicates with a potential voter or when a civic organization connects to a potential voter because employers ultimately control the economic livelihood of their workers and as a result of labor law you know employers have a great deal of latitude in hiring and firing rewarding or punishing workers even for their political views and speech this might surprise some of your listeners Heath but the first amendment in the United States doesn't give private sector workers any free speech rights or protections on the job. You know, there's no federal protection against being fired for your political views or actions in the private sector. And so that means that when employers make requests of their workers, some workers may feel as though they have to respond in order to keep their jobs. And this is something that I find in the survey results in my book that workers who are more fearful of losing their job are are more likely to respond to their employers. And so that raises the concern to me that employer political mobilization may be inherently pressuring or coercive. And I think we need new legal limits in order to make workers feel safer about ignoring these requests, even if even if they're worried that their employer may may punish them for that. Um, Another reason I think we should be concerned about employer political recruitment is we're living in a time of immense political inequality. As some of the other guests on this podcast have noted in their work, we're living in a time when the interests of wealthier Americans and businesses are far more likely to be represented in politics than those of lower income Americans. And employer mobilization affords businesses an additional tool for shaping policy and politics that other actors. Don't have.
0: Now, uh, the, uh, the book again is Politics at Work, How Companies Turn Their Workers Into, into Lobbyists. I wonder, in conclusion, if um, you could talk a little bit about um, and, and talk briefly about the extent to which this is uh, these are coordinated activities. And, and maybe you might highlight the, the, the other book project that I imagine is reaching conclusion that, that might have something to say about uh, whether these are individual companies acting. Um, individually or whether they are uh, pooling these activities and and sharing ideas about how to effectively mobilize their employees. So um, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that and, and we'll wrap up.
1: That's a great question. And one of the things that stood out to me when I was retracing the reemergence of, uh, of employer mobilization was the central role of business associations, and especially a, a group called the Business Industry Political Action Committee, that sort of made the sales case to managers about why they should be engaging in employer mobilization, sort of emphasizing to them that this was legal that this was effective, and this was something that they could easily implement at their companies. Um, and it, part of that meant coordinating their efforts to elect particular candidates and to focus on particular bills. And so the business associations have played a big role in getting companies to mobilize their workers around specific candidates and pieces of policy at the state and the federal level. And that reflects a more general tendency that I'm writing about in a new book that will hopefully be coming out next year entitled State Capture, How Big Businesses, Conservative Activists, and Wealthy Donors have reshaped the American states and the nation. Where I talk about how new associations that have formed since the 1970s have brought together conservative activists with businesses to reshape policy across the states in a really coordinated way. It's that coordination that I think is is new and um, has big payoffs when we're looking at policy change at the state and the federal level.
0: Yeah. Well, you must come on uh, next year when the new book, uh, newer, newer book, comes out. Until then. Uh, The current book, Politics at Work, How Companies Turn Their Workers into Lobbyists, is published by Oxford University Press.
1: Alex, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.